Hello and welcome everybody. This is the Nick Dory Show, my podcast where I crisscross the animation industry and get to talk to really interesting and accomplished guests. I've been in animation for almost 20 years now and I still encounter tons of situations where I'm thinking, okay, how does somebody else deal with this problem? Do I do I have the best way figured out already or could I improve somehow? And this podcast is really about scratching my own itch. I get to ask smart people about their solutions to common problems and uh, I hope that you find this as interesting as I did. And I really appreciate any feedback on these episodes, so feel free to drop me a line at nick at nickdora.com, that's N-I-C-K at N-I-C-K-D-O-R-R-A dot com, or via Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you really like uh, what you hear on the episodes, feel free to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, so it will show up for anybody else looking for similar content. This episode is kindly sponsored by Selection, the developers of Selection 2D, the software that is used in some of the most successful animation series in the world like Peppa Pig, Bluey, and Mr. Bean. Today, it's my pleasure to speak with Gary Milne, head of content development at Zodiac Kids Studios. In his role, Gary oversees the creative development and production of a broad slate of projects in both animation and live action. And Gary's credits include artistic guidance in the development and production of Lilybuds, a preschool show for France Television and Discovery Kids Latin America, as well as being an important part of the team that won the Pulcinella Award for Best TV Pilot for the reboot of Mumphy. Before moving into development and production, Gary actually worked in distribution across sales and co-productions. And you'll hear in our conversation how tightly those two worlds of sales and development really are intertwined and how everything links together. But without further ado, I invite you to enjoy my conversation with Gary Milne. So Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So very, it's a very good. Thing. <laughs> um, would you, for context, would you mind giving the audience uh, like a rough uh, path of how you ended up where you are right now, both in terms of the company and uh, the position? Absolutely. Um, it's funny. I think I've spoken to so many people about how they got into the kids industry, and I don't think there's ever one, you know. It's key answer. Um, I think, uh, like many people, I sort of found my way. Um, I actually started um, in uh, life as a graphic designer post-university, um, working in print. Uh, at the time, no one had uh, told me that uh, print was uh, on the decline and that the, the digital age was going to take over. But of course, um, you know, I was that... Uh, young designer that wanted to do pretty things in print and um and so i spent four years as a graphic designer working in the industry and at the time i was looking to television all the time and seeing that the sort of emergence of, of really great content and while i was at university i dabbled in flash animation and so i took the punt of 
while freelancing as a designer, I worked um, for free in development uh, at a little company in Cardiff. And that's when the, the, the bug kind of bit me. And um, so I, I pursued heavily trying to get into television. And like many people, you have to sort of get in at the bottom. So I, I applied to be a runner um, at RDF Television. Uh, spent um, a good few, uh, almost a year actually, working on different things. And not just, um, you know, it was a variety of things. I worked as a production secretary on an entertainment show for ITV. I worked as a junior researcher on a show, um, a reality TV show. Um, and uh, that actually was a, a show called Shipwrecked. And um, that afforded me the opportunity to get to spend 12 weeks in the Cook Islands one summer, which was amazing. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was pretty fortunate gig. Um but it was through, um, you know, working uh, with lots of different producers and people at RDF um, that an opportunity came up at Zodiac Kids. And um, it was a, it's just supposed to be a, you know, a short term contract. Um, I'd go in and I'd help the, at the time, the current SVPs of uh, distribution and um, uh, consumer products. And uh, I never left. So that was, uh, we're coming up to, it'll be my 10th anniversary in September. Um, what I can safely say, and I think a lot of people have said this about the kids industry, is when you arrive, suddenly people have this, this feeling of, I found my people. Um, and I found the, the, the place I should be. Um, I think also just having that artistic background in graphic design really pulled me towards animation specifically um, and obviously as part of my role there um, I was exposed a lot to our um, big catalogue of, of content um, and so I actually started the, the beginning of my career in kids tv was actually on the distribution and sales side um, but having done my development um, piece of work at the beginning I, I very much was focused I, I wanted to be um, across the editorial um, so thankfully I had a, a, a very um, you know open boss who really encouraged me and was sort of my mentor um, and enabled me to sort of um, attend a lot of development meetings and um, and that sort of progressed from there gradually um, until I became a development executive and then um, working closely with our um, chief creative officer um, and you know, across our, our whole slate of live action and animation projects and um, continue to evolve from there into the role I have now, which is um, head of content development for Zodiac Kids. Brilliant. Um, what, what would you say um, are some of the most important lessons that you've been able to uh, take from your time as, as a as a sales exec and and apply now in in your current role uh absolutely i you know it's invaluable to know how the business side works uh, for for, our, for this industry um because you know you need to whilst i would always say that you know great ideas great characters are fundamental 
if a show is just not going to be financed unfortunately it's not going to hit screens and it's not going to get to the audiences that you you want and of course i think luckily now with the advent of so many platforms there are different places your content can go which is very exciting but the economics always have to you know be be considered um and so my grounding in distribution made me understand you know both the value of ip the value of a catalog um you know uh looking at what is the volume of content you have to sell you know certainly from a distribution standpoint of you know volume is still a a key factor um whereas you know looking now at vod platforms they are taking on you know shorter form or a shorter um order series but just generally having an awareness of you know where the money will be coming from will enable you to to get that story told that you want to tell uh if if we if we dig a little deeper into that um yeah. you know let's let's imagine uh that we we have a producer uh or a creator listening to this and mm-hmm. and they're wondering yeah of course the economics have to be considered but mm-hmm. um what does that mean in a more sort of practical approach would would you be able to share any actual story even if you know uh omitting crucial details or, or whatever but uh kind of some something that would go a bit more deeper into how you really approach that because it's you hear that being said uh very often uh but but um it must be more than just a seat of the pants feeling right yes um that's a really good question i'll try to answer that as best i can Uh, of course not divulging anything uh, confidential but i think of course you know so from Zodiac Kids perspective, we are fortunate that we have a base in the UK and a base in France. Um, and we produce live action animations, you know, from naught to 16 in terms of target demographics. So we have a broad reach and, and, and remit. Um, but when we are considering things like financing, we, of course, both look at the landscape, look at where we think the um, the show will work editorially. I think it's interesting how often I ask producers and creators, you know, forgetting deal terms and all of this aside, where do you see your content going? And so many times people don't think about that. They don't think, you know, they don't imagine the the broadcaster or the platform that they would ideally see this. And mm-hmm. I think that's often quite crucial as a as a beginning mm-hmm. because yeah. that gives you a guidance of, okay, am I looking to make this a local piece? Am I telling a, a you know a British story? Am I telling a Finnish story? And am I targeting, you know, the public broadcaster or a, or a local broadcaster? Um, or am I going for a global audience? And do I think it, the editorial matches one of the key global players? That's the good a good grounding to then go. Okay, if that's where we see it going, how do we man manage? you know imagine that being financed 
it goes without saying that as a European company, we look to opportunities um, of, you know, can we access certain subsidies in certain territories? Um, You know, you've got a French-Canadian co-production is a very strong um, model to to look at. But again, that will be driven by... um, who are your target broadcasters? Who are also your creators? Um, because in many countries, there are certain um, stipulations on um, what is considered, um, you know, French content, um, Canadian content. Um, so we have to look at, okay, who is the original creator? Um, and obviously for us, it's always important to, um, to deliver on that creator. We really, you know, for us, we always describe ourselves as almost like um, the muscle um, that attaches to really great creators. And we look at that piece and go, okay, this is your vision. This is what you want to see it as being where you want it to go. Okay, now how can we finance that? Mm-hmm. Um, I know I haven't talked to any about specific figures, but, um, you know, I think, does that give you a sense of, of how we approach things? I, I think so, and and uh, as you say, if if that is like if the question of where do you see this content uh, eventually being being shown uh, to an audience, uh, I think it already you know is a very good first step and and, and first sort of homework uh, assignment. If uh, as you say, you get that uh, situation so often, so I, I think this yeah. is. I, I think to, to elaborate on that, I think it's also, you know, often um, it's uh, it, it's a fast track way of understanding, you know, tone, age target, um, so many things, you know, we hear, uh, you know, I hear and I'm sure you do so many times from broadcasters and platforms that, they, you know, you have to watch them and you have to know what they're looking for. You have to get a good sense of um what they are about as a platform yeah and then that really does help you go okay the project i have here is really suitable or is it oil and water and that's really not the right place and then of course you can then look at um do certain platforms or certain broadcasters share similarities in editorial and then perhaps there are certain um you know uh coll- uh co-production opportunities or um, commissioning opportunities that fit together naturally just by virtue of um, of uh, their editorial yeah and, and looking at if, if they have been if they have been uh, commissioners on uh, joint projects before uh, of yes. course as well and, and I think that's that's one thing that you know makes makes it easier nowadays uh, to get a feel for for a broadcaster's lineup is that you can go onto the website, but then you can usually find quite a lot of content, if even if it's not full episodes on YouTube, and then you can kind of see, even if you don't know the shows that they have on, on uh, playing, you can still kind of do your homework so much easier than it was some years ago. Absolutely. And I think um, another sort of element in this is, you know, it, it, there is somewhat a little bit of crystal ball gazing involved in certainly in animation if we're talking 18 to 
18 months to two year sort of production cycles and you, you've got a you know the the, the um, sort of lead-in for financing as well so of course I don't think any broadcaster out there is going to expect you to know what exactly is going to be on their air in two years time but it's at least um, you know step one is uh, showing willing and that you've you've really engaged with their um, their brand um, yes. and and that's not exclusive you know I think we use uh, broadcasters now to, as a catch-all you know I'm talking platforms as well I'm talking you know wherever you think um, your content um, could end up um, you you really need to be aware of that landscape. Yep. Yeah, and and I I still have to add that I like uh, I, I like what, how you how you said that it's a fast track to figuring out at least the initial tone H H demo uh, and so on. So you're kind of you're making one decision that then helps you through a whole subset of other decisions. Um, so that it, it helps a lot. Yeah, and there will always be the outliers. There will always be the disruptors. There'll always be that one show that you think. Crikey, I would never have have expected X to have picked that up or um, that really is out there. Um, and that is another exciting element. I'm not saying that every show should fit into a box um, because, you know, that's that's something that excites me about the industry is when, you know, something comes across your desk or you see something that someone else has produced that is just, you know, you sort of, um, you know, hit yourself and go, you know, I really wish I'd I'd done that. Um, mm. So, but uh, but again, I just think um, it's it's a good base, it's a good starting point. Um, yep. Yeah. Definitely. Um, now that we are already in kind of platform and broadcaster territory, um, what do you feel, um, or or how do you view uh, the question of uh, are all platforms broadcasters created equal in terms of who you approach first or are there broadcasters that you know you would you would prioritize over over others when uh, and, and you don't have to have to name single broadcasters no, 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 I, I kind understand. of when, when you're when you're in independent especially when you're an independent producer and uh, you have limited uh, bandwidth limited resources limited everything uh, you have to be very focused. So do, do you have uh, a view on that? I think um, my my answer to that would, again, really come back to that process, which I've already sort of um, mentioned, is you, you shouldn't prioritize a broadcaster other than go to the person or the, the platform or the broadcaster that you think fits your project best. Um, for me, because I, I don't see any variance in value between, you know, um, go, approaching, uh, you know, your local broadcaster to a global broadcaster to a VOD platform. It really is about, um, you know, where should my idea go um, and also be with a with a mind to the 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 financing model again um you know do i do i think that um they are um going to be the best place for me editorial and that are am i going to be able to get this show made um by approaching them 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, but in in a sense, you would say that that there are differences between between broadcasters. Then, of course, uh, mon uh, in the monetary sense, how much how much they'll be able to contribute. Um, but then, yeah, would you say then it's uh, striking a balance uh, between between the creative and commercial? Uh, definitely, um, it's all, there's always going to be a push and pull between the creative and the commercial. Um, uh, that that goes without saying. But I think, uh, and again, of course, I, there's going to be different tariffs and different uh, amounts of financing that you're going to get from certain broadcasters. Um, but I think, really, quite often, that tallies with with rights. You know, so. The more rights you give away, <laughs> the mm. money you could expect to receive in remuneration for that as a broad stroke. Um, so again, you know, I always describe it as sort of a, you know, a game of Jenga. You really, it's it's just kind of working out that that puzzle and thinking, okay, if I'm if I'm uh, going to this broadcaster here and getting this piece of the the sort of financing, who's compatible with that, both editorially and from a co-production standpoint, and you know, you sort of build up the picture, um, mm. and I always feel like this is you know, may sound like you're dodging, oh, I'm dodging the question, but I think there's no one size fits all um, model um, in in my experience. So you really have to break it down, both from, again, from an editorial and from a, a you know, a cost standpoint, because again, it will be dependent on the number of episodes, the, um, is it 2D, is it CG? Uh, where is that being produced? Who, you know, all of these elements come into play um, that it's it's hard to really, um, to explain a, a, a one, one model. Yeah, and I, I would suppose actually building on that idea um, that then of course you also go back like if, if you've identified that this content can reasonably only live kind of on 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 these more let's say local channels or mm -hmm. or or smaller channels that are not able to put put up that much money then how do we then approach the creative so that that we can that we can do it at a price point that's you know possible um i i mean i would say that there are examples in the market of content that's been produced on so little money um i that and yet the value um that both the audience um gets and 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 for the the broadcaster is is been exponential compared to to the initial investment, um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of um, the the um, the series scam that went out on social media, um, mm. and I think you know the the initial budgets for that were so limited because they were shot on it was shot on um, an iPhone. Um, yeah. I think you just have to look at the creative and go assess you know what is the story i'm trying to tell what really is um 
the viability in the market as in where I'm going to go what could I get in terms of a budget and then you know creatively think of okay how can I deliver that under those restraints and I know that um you know it's going to sound super pretentious from me but even from this the current situation with the coronavirus you know I've heard myself saying um uh you know um necessity is the mother of invention Mm. and we have seen people creating content on lockdown for very little money um and delivering to huge audiences um Mm. you know i just read that um disney have just um delivered some frozen shorts um from lockdown um, so they had the uh, animator and then um, Josh Gad just voicing from home um, and they put that up on YouTube. You know, they're 40, 50 second um, clips, uh, but they're just, um, they're enjoyable and they um, give people at home a little slice of something, a little moment, um, which obviously will then lead back into the the bigger IP. So I think generally, um, you know, of course we all look at budgets, but and 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 think how can I deliver the thing that I want to deliver. Um, mm. But I do think you have to look at okay, these are my these are the realistic um, constraints that I'm under. Can I still deliver the the story I want to tell um, under that? um scenario um and often you can um so yeah 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 exactly and uh i i think that's uh a very particular situation of course right now but but it, it it is true also in you know more quotation marks normal times when when you're always trying to as an indie, you're always trying to kind of figure out how to how to get ahead uh, with less resources and 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 so yeah. on. So that's that that's always valuable. Yeah, if, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say, of course, I'm not going to say it's easy, and you know, just um, it it will happen overnight. If I can, you know, make it, it will happen. That it is it is um, a challenge, and it you know, um, it. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it um, every minute. But uh, I think you, you know, it's um, it's definitely something that you have to look at um, both the creative and the budget and see. Um, again, talking back back to that push and pull. Um, but hopefully, m- most importantly, not compromising too much on the um, the original intention and the creative that you wanted to deliver. Yeah, yeah. If if we look a bit more at at the creative uh, piece of the puzzle, uh, mm. what what does a usual day for you look like? Um, well, now of course it's a bit different <laughs> than usual. But uh, just in terms of kind of the tasks uh, that you're looking at, like what what does a what what does a person in your with your job title actually do all day? Um, that's a very interesting question that I hear often from families, family and friends. Um, <laughs> no idea what I'm doing um, day in day out. I often get so you do you draw the animation, and I go no. no, no. <laughs> 
that's not what I do every day. Um, it's obviously, I think there are different pillars. I, I, I oversee our development slate. Again, as I mentioned, we have a very broad remit, both live action and animation. So as part of that, I'm looking at what are the current projects that I'm trying to um, take out to the market um, and pitch. Uh, often that is, uh, you know, in let's say normal times, that would be quite driven by markets. So they're really um, fantastic opportunities to go and meet the wider community and take out um, pitches. Um, so, so, you know, talking about MIPCOM, Kidscreen, um, uh, Annecy, WMIFA in Annecy, uh, Children's Media Conference here in the UK. Um, there are, there are the, you know, they're really fantastic opportunities. So often I'm planning to those um, and making sure I'm working with writers, designers um, to pull together both the concept um, of, of an IP uh, through writing a Bible. And then often we look to write one or two scripts um, to really, um, we think they're an excellent way of showing um, you know, your vision, the voice of the characters, um, really what does a show look like? Um, and then, you know, building those decks, working with um, graphic designers to lay them out um, in order to then have a fully formed pitch to take to market, followed by, you know, um, follow-up materials to send to um, whoever you're looking to, to um, you know, the broadcasters or platforms. Uh, so part of my role, you know, is also when I'm at those markets, I am the, the pitcher. So I'm um, often stood in front of many people um, doing my little um, spiel and my proposal. Um, and so, that's one prong of my job, um, you know, really uh, just being the person that helps guide the creative vision with the writers and the designers. And then um, another prong of my job is having um, really strong connection to our distribution team. You know, we meet weekly um, to discuss the wider um, landscape. Uh, you know, they are the eyes and ears on the ground, talking to the broadcasters and buyers on a daily basis. So, you know, um, they really are, you know, connected. Um, and we have a lot of interaction to work out, okay, where are the gaps? What are the needs? Um, and that will then be pulled back into my assessment of the current slate of projects that I'm looking after. Um, and then um, I, I think, you know, the sort of uh, that, I mean, that probably actually sums up the, the two core elements of, of my role. Um, and uh yeah, just I think an, another key element is from, from, you know, from me personally is looking at what's going on in the world. What are the stories that we should be telling for, um, for kids? I think it's really interesting how we can often forget the, uh, that we're telling stories for kids and we're not trying to be, um, you know, 
adults thinking about what kids are thinking, we really need to get inside the minds of, of our audiences. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that we did, um, and I hope you don't mind me saying, but Nick, you and I collaborated on a project and one key element of that was we ran workshops with kids mm -hmm. of, of that, our target audience to really understand whether um, they understood the concept, engaged with the concept, found it funny, thought the characters were great, um, and hear about their preconceptions uh, and their um, preoccupations and, you know, the things that they're into. I think that's super important um, as a sort of development executive to be plugged in in that way. Definitely. Um, I do, do you have any any other uh, examples of, of how you do that? Because, uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure this is, this is okay for me to say, but mm. uh, despite your looks, uh, you're 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 not a six year old or an eight year old. You wouldn't pass <laughs> for that. Mm. Uh, so, um, how do do you have any you know tools of the trade or any resources, any processes that that you use to kind of get that info? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there are um, several different ways. One I've already mentioned, which is, you know, running workshops, um, do outreach programs to schools, um, really find opportunities and ways you can interact with target audiences. Um, again, not forgetting the fact that there's a bias on where you're doing that, who you're doing that with in terms of um, both uh, from the territory, the country you're doing it in, um, the social economic backgrounds of the children, the age of the children, um, you know, rural city, there's so many factors. So I think you can get quite granular with it. And in doing that, I would approach um, a, a research um, company. Um, in the past, we've worked with a company called Play Science in New York. They did some audience testing for us when we were looking to develop um, a, a, a heritage IP and sort of bring it to the current um, uh, to, to the current market. Um, you know, really sitting with kids. Um, it depends again on the age. Uh, so for that particular project, it was preschoolers. So we did a lot of play testing, um, you know, working with companies that um, are experienced um, and have, you know, really um, brilliant uh, researchers that um, engage with the kids, sit on the floor, um, use puppets, use drawing, you know, different ways to understand what their, that their world is, um, all the way up to sort of um, you know, tweens. Uh, we have um, quite a few strong uh, brands on YouTube, and we get um, you know uh, a lot of um, fan comments. Um, people, you know, come would reach effectively reach to us on social media, be that parents for the, the sort of younger age um, or uh, for tweens. Um, you know, we, we um, hear from them directly, especially especially if they're passionate about uh, uh, an IP. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's just thinking about the appropriate ways um, and the setups that you can um, engage um, kids uh, 
is um is how i how we would go about it for sure yeah yeah um you also said that you you're very plugged in with the sales team uh of course and, and they they are you know as as you as you said uh they are the people who talk with buyers uh yeah. every day that's 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 their job mm-hmm. do you feel that there is value in um in production companies trying to set up their their own distribution arm just for that purpose so that they they are more uh sort of have have their ear more to the ground um or do you feel that the sort of investment versus what you get out of it and then of course you have your own uh distribution arm at zodiac kids so uh you uh you know you know the the benefit from from a robust uh sales sales team but but do you see that there is like a balance to be struck or does it lean one way or the other um i would say you know it's our industry is really driven by relationships and um you know i I would say the value whether you're deciding to set up your own distribution or or not I think it's it's very important to reach out and make a connection with the 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 people that you um, are looking to um, sell your IP um, into or or you're looking to partner with, because you know in success these are really long term relationships that you're effectively looking to have with someone the broadcaster, um, the execs that you're dealing with. You know, so I think um, it's it's essential to, you, when you're selling an IP, you're also selling yourself, right? You're selling um, who you're about. This, this is obviously, of course, I'm talking about speculative projects, um, things in development, um, things that are advanced or, you know, need gap financing. You're looking to a partnership. Of course, if you have a, a catalog of IP, that's a slightly different because you're selling something that is finished um, and that someone can review and give a f- you know their their complete um, and uh, final opinion on. Um, whereas when you're talking about development, you're really selling an idea. You're selling yourself. You're selling the concept. You're selling a promise of what you will deliver. Um, so it's really essential to establish strong relationships. I would say if you're early in the industry, you're you're sort of um, fresh in the industry, then it probably makes sense to partner with a strong distributor. Um, you know, uh, at, at Zodiac, we look at projects uh, from you know inception right the way to through to completion and we we will um, potentially partner at any point along that sort of chain depending on the project Um, but I do think you know um, there is a lot of value in having people that are established in the industry that have those relationships that are able to get those meetings um, you know to 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 springboard you and, and take you on on that journey and then once you have you know several projects under your belt then it becomes a different um a different scenario because you have your calling card you can point to things that you've done um 
as as your as anyone would for any job with you know we all have CVs um, we use those to say this is what I've done um, and uh, this is this is why you should um, you know hire me or partner with me so um, I hope that answers yeah. that yeah. question <laughs> yeah definitely definitely um, and you know when when you're when you are tending to those uh, to those relationships and and you are pitching uh, directly to people, uh, do you have any uh, you know with ten years experience now at Zodiac plus plus everything before that, mm-hmm. have you developed any tips or processes on how you prepare for uh, for for a pitch or then for a subsequent? kind of uh, negotiation where you start to talk about like, okay, how do we shape this, uh, what, what what the broadcaster wants from this mm-hmm. show, et cetera? Do you have anything? Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, there's a couple of things um, that have certainly benefited me. I think um, be authentic. Um, and I mean that as, as just from a personal standpoint, um, people, on uh, mass, I think the kids industry is full of very lovely people. I, that, again, that's what part of what um, you know has kept me here and why I fell in love with it. But I think we spend so much time at markets and traveling and meeting people that it's just it is a pleasure to meet authentic people who you can imagine yourself, um, you know, working with, but also socializing with, because um, you want to know that if you're on a project for two plus years, um, that when things get tough, that will get you through, because there'll always be challenging moments in any project. And so I think to have those solid relationships and those partnerships is is invaluable. And then just from a practical standpoint for pitching, Um, I really approach it almost like a performance. And again, I don't mean that uh, having just talked about authenticity to then say the word performance that could feel contrived. But what I mean (laughs) is I I write a pitch like I almost would write a, a script and I learn it and I go over it and I practice it. And then the thing is, once you're comfortable with that pitch and you've learned it to you know so you don't need to look at your cards anymore you can then go off script and be flexible in the room you know you can um tweak things and feel confident that um you know if you're not getting a sense um, of you know people leaning in at certain points if they if you feel like they might be you know um switching off speed it up um skip past bits that are not crucial to the editorial if you feel you're limited on time. Because another thing that I find often, you think you're going to have 10 minutes. In reality, you have four. So you practice this wonderful pitch at home where you're really going through it all pace and they have all these um, bells and whistles. And then for whatever reason, certainly at markets, you know, um, meetings run over, people have to leave early. Um, you know, you have to be um, able to adapt to that scenario. Um, but uh, I feel like there was an, another element to your question that maybe I haven't answered. But for me, yeah, they're, they're the two key things that I that I have um, to offer. No, I think I think that sounds that sounds great, and it it does map onto my my experience as well. Um, 
after the pitch, do you have any rules on on how you how how you follow up, how aggressively you you pursue um, you know an, uh, a reply? Okay, I'm gonna sound again super cheesy, so please um, forgive me. But I think that a really simple rule of thumb is um, do what you would like done to you. So imagine how you feel straight after a market. I don't know. For me, after MIPCOM, um, I often want to lay in a dark room for several days um, because you're sort of, there's an overload of socializing and pitching and interaction um, that, you know, you need to really decompress. And so what I would say is imagine um, the shoe on the other foot, the broadcasters and the platforms have had the same situation as you. So I would be, don't be too, I don't, I don't think there's value in being too keen and sending your projects in immediately straight after. I would just give it a little bit of time. I'm only talking, um, uh, you know, a week or two to make sure that you're you're being received in the best situation. Um, and then in terms of then follow up, it really is something that you just have to get a feel for. Um, you have to gauge that based on how well you know the person, um, what they gave in terms of feedback in the room. Did you get a sense of positivity in the room? Then I would, I would, you know, say if you pitched two or three things, but you really got a sense of um, their engagement on one. Um, follow up with that at the top of your list and say, I'm sharing, you know, three projects with you, but my priority is this, I really felt you engage with it and explain why. Um, because again, I think we're all so busy um, that overloading people with, you know, eight projects with, you know, 90 page Bibles is really going to be an impingement for you at the initial stage. Um, you know, there's no harm in hooking people in with with something and then getting them wanting more. Um, so I think that's that's crucial. I, I couldn't say, you know, you must follow up at day 14 and at day 28, send a, a second follow up because I don't I just don't think that's how um, how the world works. But again, just, you know, you trust your intuition um, and and be also guided a little bit by your um, your schedule so for example if you've gained momentum and you've got two partners attached that's a really great time to to reach out to someone that maybe hasn't given you a response yet because you have something to say um so actually on on second follow-up so if you've you've sent materials out and heard nothing i often think you know second follow-up is is often good if you have something to say some news to share some some additional um uh information um that's always good yeah yeah i i agree uh whether it's more you know more development materials that you've been working on or whether it's news about who has come on the project and so on that's yeah. always warrants warrants reaching out again yeah to some people yeah yeah um we are slowly approaching uh the end of our session uh so we'll shift gears a little bit and um to my to my uh, sort of end questions that that I've been asking several of uh, of the guests on this podcast. 
Right. Um, so, <laughs> is is there anything you wish you had known when you first started out? Ooh, um, anything I wish I'd known. Oh, if you be... imagine yourself as the as the wise mentor in your rocking chair, <laughs> who wants to impart on the new, the young Gary? I think. Um, one thing that I was told by a mentor of mine is trust your gut. And I've had so many instances, even relatively recently, where I've ignored that thing that that whether it be a red flag or just a just a nudge from yourself going, um, is that is that the way you should do that? Or um is that is that the best it could be or you know any any of these like little things these little questions these little moments um don't ignore them there's probably a reason that that um is happening you know this can come down even just to to creative where you know sometimes i've um you know seen something and thought thought oh maybe that should be tweaked and I don't necessarily know the answer, but something in me is telling me it's not not right. And just listen to that. And 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 you don't necessarily have to have the answer. You're surrounded, hopefully, by you know people in the industry uh, that could um, you know you could talk to for advice, friends, colleagues. Um, but you know, I've heard often people calling that a, a you know an itch uh, that they they can't scratch. You know, there's there's often times, and that can be you know commercially, that can be creatively. Um, so yes, I would say don't ignore your gut instincts. That's what I I keep trying to tell myself as a, a little mantra. That's a very good very good po point. I second that. Um, what are currently your open browser tabs? Oh, I just shut them all right now. But actually, do you know what? Well, funny enough, that, that does actually say something about you. But <laughs> yeah, the court, no. um, funny enough, um, uh, I I have kids screen um, open um, often. I just think it's um, one thing that we I, a resource that I go to a lot, and just it's really good to be plugged into what's going on in the industry. And uh, you, you mean the um, the sort of magazine online magazine version or the exchange? Yeah. Yes, yeah. so the online magazine yeah. version, absolutely. Um, I did. I'm just looking at my phone actually because my tabs are open. Um, and funny enough. Um, as we're on a podcast, um, someone had told me to look at, and maybe it was you, Nick, the, the Animation Network podcast. Um, no. Uh, yeah. That's something that I, I want to check out. I haven't yet. Um, and then on a personal note, um, I've actually, uh, I've just um, started drawing again. Um, oh. which I did a lot at university and I, I, I don't know if it was like six cents, but I, I treated myself to an iPad pro just before the lockdown. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I'm doing, uh, so I've got procreate and I'm loving drawing on a tablet, which I've never done before. Um, so one of the tabs I actually have open is, um, is, uh, uh, Udemy, which is, um, 
it's an online resource for um, teaching you skills. So I'm doing like a character design um, course just as a as really not for anything other than um, we're in lockdown. It's a hobby. Um, I think it's really important to at this time reconnect with um, what you love um, that isn't just your job. Um, cool. And but in this instance, it, it has a connection, of course, because there's that passion there. But um, so yeah, that's my that's my open tabs at the minute. Um, <laughs> And I think there might be more that I uh, I, I would um, would go into uh, at another time. <laughs> sure. Um, phone or email? Oh, um, I think for every phone call you could send ten emails. So phone call. I'm with you on that. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I love the I, the saying I I saw somewhere that a producer a producer uh, used to be a person with a telephone who knew what they're doing. That was the uh, the, the the you know the definition. Another one I heard is um, there's n um, no such thing as an urgent email. Mm. Um, because I think you know, for most of us, we all have each other's phone numbers. Um, and I think in any situation, if something is truly um, urgent, pick up the phone and call and say, look, this is this is the situation um, and you can resolve it very quickly. Uh, I think so many people rely on, but I sent you an email um, yeah. and I just it's um, think that gets missed. You don't know how many emails people get, you know, um, and I think again this current situation we're in right now i've never video called so much in my life and yeah. i'm not talking just for work i i'm i've spoken to my family way way more in the past two weeks it's so lovely um so yeah uh calls 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 um is is there anything that you would have wanted to mention or or talk about that uh, we didn't have time to discuss yet? That relates somehow to what, whatever we've been talking about, or anything that you would want to impart on on the audience. Oof, that is so challenging. Um, I mean. I think something I hold on to, and it's it's something that I um, keep coming back to more and more on projects, is um, you know character, character, character. Um, yep. So many things that you point to where you're like, that's bizarre, but why is it working? And I think it comes down to character and authenticity, and you can't um, you can't get away from that, and I read so many submissions and so many things that I think it has all the ingredients, but there's something that I'm not connecting with. And I and whenever I think what's the problem, it's just about the character. Like, do I like them? Do I want to go on this journey with them? Whatever it may be. And I'm, you know, obviously not talking epic sweeping fantasy journeys the journey can be anything it can be small it can be um domestic um but you know really sit down and when you've got a project look at that as a as a real kind of 
number one. And equally, a little tip that someone said to me a while ago, um, and it's probably something that's been used a million times, but it, I, I find it super useful. Um, and that is get a script, um, get a marker and and basically mark over the name of the characters in black and then look at the script, look at the dialogue and really go, could I tell who this character is based on this dialogue? Um, and it's not necessarily yeah. about a turn of phrase. It's not about the way they, you know, the, 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 um, that they, um, their sort of um, dialogue is, is more driven by them as a character. It doesn't have to be that they say a certain funny word or they say, you know, um, uh, they have a certain accent. I'm not talking about that. I just mean, um, yeah, from the core of who they are as characters. And this applies, you know, I, across all um, genre and age targets. Yeah, definitely. That is a very good point, I think, to to wrap up. Um, Gary, thank you so much. I, I made tons of notes. Uh, oh, <laughs> bless you. Thank, thank you so much for having me. I can safely say um, this is the, the my my first foray into podcasting, and you've made it um, a pleasure. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. And uh, yeah, stay safe and uh, take care. Yeah, thank you. Bye. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please uh, do send me your feedback. Do give the podcast a five-star rating if you enjoyed what you heard. And if you want to be kept in the loop on upcoming episodes, you can go to nickdora.com forward slash blog to sign up for the newsletter so you'll be notified about the next episode. Take care. Hear you soon.